Yo, what you've been waiting for. You thought we were gone, but we tricked you. We're back. We're back on that ass. The diversity hires. Back at you. Shoo. How you doing? I'm great. I'm happy to be back. I think this is going to be the best season of the diversity hires yet. And even though we've only had one previous season, I still feel like this is going to be the best. It's going to be better. I feel like we need a season two title. Like, I don't know what it is, but something. I have no idea what the season two title could be, but I know what we're going to do today. What are we doing today? We're going to catch up with each other, see how we've been faring during this little break that we had. We're going to be talking about the bombshell article in the Wall Street Journal that came out about the cost of film school that highlights our old school, Columbia University. And if we have time, we're going to be answering a few listener questions. You're you're very kind to say that the Wall Street Journal article highlights our school, Columbia University. Murders and destroys is the... The probably the proper uh, adjective there, but uh, or adverb, whatever the hell it is. But yeah, it highlights that. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Hit the music. Yo, 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 The diversity hires where Sherman Shu shoot the shit about screenwriting. We are two professional screen and television writers living and working in Los Angeles, and we come here every week to give you the lowdown on the business, the craft, and the culture of writing for film and television from a distinctly black point of view. I am your co-host, Shukri Hassan Tillman. Hey, yo, I am a star in any room I stand in. I am the standout. You just my stand-in. You already know who it is. The greatest screenwriter of all time, a.k.a. the G-Swope. The living embodiment of the Courier font. And your favorite screenwriter's favorite screenwriter. Your other co-host, Sherman Payne, in the building, ready to go. That's what's up. That's a strong intro for the return. Yeah, one like take. That. One take Sherm. I like that. One take Sherm. I like hey, that. Hey, yo, Guru. Hey, yo, Guru, turn me up in my headphones. One take. <laughs> I like that. I like that. It's, glad, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, we took some time off towards the beginning of the summer. Um, not sure when everybody will hear this. I think we're going to launch in at the end of july or the beginning of august but um how has your summer been so far it's been sort of indiscernible for from what was going on before i've just been working nonstop. i couldn't tell you that like the summer is fundamentally different it's been just a blur bro just a blur so it's been full of work tons of writing writing every day writing my ass off and uh trying in the meantime in between time spend time with the wife and kids, find little summer things to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's mainly been work and family, sleep, repeat. That's about it. 
Yeah, same here, Ben. Finished up our season and series of Animal Kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, which was a little bit of an odd experience in the sense that we're finishing a series and a season that isn't going to air for a whole nother year, even though um, our season premiere is, well, by the time this plays, you will have seen the season premiere if you watch it of Animal Kingdom because um, of season five, but our final season, season six, the season we were just writing, won't air probably until the following summer. So wait, wait, a bit wait, of wait. A, hold up. Yeah. I'm so confused right now. So <laughs> the promos for Animal Kingdom that I've been seeing during the, oh, that's what else I've been doing is watching NBA basketball obsessively. Uh, but the mm. promos for Animal Kingdom that I've been seeing on TNT during the NBA playoffs is yes. not for the final season. No. It's for the second to last season, which yes. is just now airing. Correct. The season that was interrupted by the pandemic, which was supposed mm. to air last summer, is now airing this summer. Mm. So the season that we... But we had finished writing it before the pandemic uh, interrupted production. So we... It's a long story. But yes. So the season that we currently finished writing and our shooting is the final season, but that won't air until next year. Gotcha. So it's very, uh, yeah, it's a little strange. So finishing that and then transitioning into some other development stuff and hopefully I'll be able to, to, you know, announce some new projects and new things that we're working on, on this podcast. Mm -hmm. This is going to be up and down this episode. We're just getting back into the groove. Got to knock off some of the rust. Yeah. You know, we are like, uh, you know, we're Chris Paul when he came back into the Western Conference final series, you know. Got to knock Work. off. He was out. He was out for a while. Got to knock off some rust. We're, you then know, get listen, back into it. Bro, we are knocking off the rust. I think the people who really love us uh, are going to stick with us. If you're new to the podcast somehow, hey, don't worry. It's going to get better. We hope. Yeah, there you go. Um, one of the ways we should knock off the rust is by talking about something that is very, very familiar to us, mm-hmm. which is this uh, this controversy that's going on with elite graduate programs, specifically what's going on at Columbia University. Yeah, set the stage for them because uh, currently, right now, this article that appeared in the Wash uh, the Wall Street Journal is still. The most popular article, I just checked it online, uh, in the Wall Street Journal. So set it up for for the people what it is. The headline of the article sets it up perfectly. Financially hobbled for life. The elite (laughs) master's degrees that don't pay off. That's the title of it. And And so you can guess from that title that it's about the cost of grad school at elite universities versus what the people are getting when they actually graduate. Now, why it's of special relevance to us is because it uh, features, I don't know, I don't want to say highlight against you, but it features Columbia University. It disparages Columbia University as sort of the worst Mm -hmm. offender in this uh, this world of elite universities. And not only does it disparage Columbia University, but it specifically... (laughs) discusses the Columbia University <laughs> film program from which we both graduated as the worst uh, worst possible investment in terms of graduate education. They say that... Like the, by far, dude, by it's far. crazy. In the cost per you know education, the cost for degree versus what you make when you leave the program, 
that ratio and that disparity is the biggest for Columbia film school graduates than when compared to any other elite graduate program. Yo, there is a graph in the, I encourage everyone to read the article and we'll talk about our feelings, I think, in here in a second, but there's a graph in the middle of the article and you, you texted this out. Yeah. This is how you started the conversation between us offline. You texted that graph and this graph essentially shows what Sherman just talked about. It illustrates what Sherman just talked about. And there's a, a point on the graph, if you can imagine, where all the way to the right of the graph would be the worst income to debt ratio. So what you make as in your profession versus what you owe in student loans. And th there's there are points like towards the right, that means that's the worst. And over on the left side, there's a bunch of points which are less, uh, more income, less debt. And uh, the points represent majors and schools, right? So you're a social worker at USC, whatever. That's on one, one point of the graph. The Columbia University Masters of Fine Arts in Film is all the way to the fucking right. Like all the way. <laughs> there is a gigantic white space. It's literally, it's literally in a league of its own. There's not even another. It's by there's not even another dot on the graph that can even come close to it. It's by itself in terms of debt to income ratio. It's by itself. It it's is we. We're number one. I mean, that's how I would spin it. We are number one. It's crazy. So people have. I've talked about it on this podcast. I'm over three hundred grand in debt. That now includes a little undergrad too, um, but. Most of that is Columbia University. And the article highlights people. I think the average is something like it's either 170 or 200 or something like that. But the people they talk about is are in the 200s, 250, whatever. It's like, you know, fucking doctors, um, except without the income prospects at all in those in comparison to those fields. Uh, so it's it's insane. What were your main takeaways, sure? What did what did you what did you how did it make you feel? Okay, well, first of all, I'll say that I'm very overall I'm very satisfied with the education I got at Columbia. I really enjoyed my time at Columbia. I learned a lot at Columbia. It's very expensive, man, which I knew before I started. I knew before I started that I was going to a private Ivy League institution and I was going to rack up a lot of debt. The hope was that that money I was spending was going to be worth it, not in terms of what jobs it got got me, because I, we can go into this later, but I don't think that's the point of schools, right? Schools are not job, yeah. job placement, factories yeah. are not job placement institutions. Schools are designed to teach. That's the only thing you can really expect from a school. Everything else is a fringe benefit. And I went to a school to learn you know, to learn more about the craft of writing. And in that respect, I'm totally pleased with my education. I actually think it's priceless. I don't know that the, that there is some, you know, um, quibbling over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or whatever. Like, I think it's priceless, man. I'm, I paid for, for something excellent. I got something excellent. I was well aware uh, that's what I was getting. I think the rub becomes, I think the rub for a lot of people, the issue is, 
when they think that schools are designed to get you a job, when they think that schools are a commodity that you purchase and what you're getting in return is not an education, but what you're getting in return is a career, right? And I just don't think of it like that. I think schools are way more complicated than than reducing it like like you're going to the grocery store to buy a, a carton of eggs, right? Like mm-hmm. you go to the grocery store, you give them a few bucks, you're guaranteed to get the eggs. And you're also guaranteed to get them fresh. And you're also guaranteed to, you know, they can't be spoiled. You're also guaranteed to make sure that they're not cracked. And that's a trade, right? That's a commodity. That's a one-to-one thing. You give them money, you get this product. Education isn't like that, man. You know, so I think the people who are most frustrated and the people in the article who are expressing the most frustration are the ones who had unrealistic expectations from school anyway. So that's my mm. that's my mm. uh, that's my initial. Drop. That's a little bit of a mic drop. Okay. Why? Why, Can I re- why is that well, a mic drop? I, I I think it's a mic drop. What do you mean? Why is it a mic drop? Because I think that's that is contrary to what I happen to agree, which I'll talk about in a second. But I think that's contrary to the tone of the article. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you Wouldn't you say? I mean, I don't think that that's that's what the I think the tone of the article is very sort of like, what are these schools doing? They're not being held accountable for this huge disparity in income versus debt. They benefit from tuition dollars, yes, and and that they're you know saddling these these students with uh, unrealistic expectations, et cetera, et cetera. You are saying, you know. Not quite the opposite, but you're not really saying anything about the school, which, which, by the way, I don't disagree with it. I'm just saying I think that that feels like a bit of a mic drop because it's a counter to what what the sort of thrust of the article is. Would you agree? Yeah, but I guess, listen, I mean, I guess what I'm doing is challenging this whole idea yes. that because you put money into a, into education, that if your career doesn't go the way you hope it does and you don't recoup all that money, that somehow the school failed you and swindled you. Well, okay. That's just not true because you, if you got the education, if you if you learned how to write a better script, which I did, which I know you did, like we're, we're pleased with that we learned how to be better screenwriters, then you got what they were offering you. Giving yeah. money to a school doesn't guarantee you a salary and a career it guarantees you an education and qualifies you for that job, but it can't get you the job. It can't get you the career. I I agree. I have a slightly different tag. I think, I don't think it's, um, you know, as as I say, a zero sum game. I don't think it's a, it's, it's necessarily an either or. I think one thing I should point out is like what you said, and I totally agree with at the top is that, the education truly is, in my opinion, is stellar. And I and I, I think that the training and the expertise of the faculty is it really is it really is stellar. And everyone in the article made a point of saying that. I thought I found that right. very interesting. That no one complained about um, the the education they were receiving. So right. to your point, they nobody says like I paid this money and I didn't get the type of training I thought I was going to get. Nobody said that. Right. So, cause I think that's over what overall we all agree that it, that it was very good. I don't think that that means it has to cost $350,000 or whatever it is, or $65,000 a year. I don't think 
I don't think it means that. I don't think it also has to mean that a school with a huge, huge billion dollar endowment, not that that equals scholarship dollars necessarily, uh, has to have a master of fine arts program where, what is it, a dozen out of, <laughs> or a dozen or two dozen out of, uh, uh, you know, a hundred and some odd students uh, have significant uh, fellowships or, or scholarships. I don't think it has to mean that. I, I think it can also mean that it doesn't need to be that fucking expensive. <laughs> I think yeah. it can mean those things too. So you guess know, what? That's what yeah. I say. Don't go. Do not go to a school that you think is too expensive. Do not go. I mean, I like. I agree like, with that. There isn't. Shoot, were you at all confused? Was there part of the article is frustrating to me because it's there's like this like all shucks thing of like I can't believe I was so much in debt. Like, did you guys do the math? Like, did you break out the calculator app on your phone and look at tuition and look at rent and look at living expenses and add it all up and see what it would be after three, four, five years? I know I did. I wasn't. I wasn't surprised. I mean, maybe, you know, here or there, there were some expenses that I didn't expect. But for the most part, I knew I was going to be in the six figures in debt. I really was sure of that. And so, like, no, there's no gun to your head to go to an elite None. Yeah. school. It doesn't need to be that expensive. But, but, but you know, it's, it's the reality of what it is right now, you know? And I think that if, if for those things to change, one, we need to basically overhaul the entire education system, right? Because... This elite graduate school, private university, even some of the elite public universities are so expensive because that's the way the education system has been going for years and years and years. The fact that students can take out money from the government, which is essentially acting like a bank, like Mm -hmm. a for-profit bank, and -hmm. they can get all this money from the government and then they can funnel it back into the school and then the school starts to expand programs and things and creates a situation where they need that money in order to sustain themselves because they're too big to fail and now they're getting more students to get more money i mean it's just a cycle that every sort of everybody's involved in and it really comes from the federal government and i think we need a huge overhaul of the entire graduate and and university education system before we can really complain about an individual university charging too much. I, again, I agree. I agree, but I just don't think that there has to be a this than that or, or uh, a linear type of, you know, uh, approach, but let me get back. Cause one of the things that you mentioned that uh, I think it's important to just point out, cause I want to bring it back to film too and, and our careers and all that. The first thing is like, from a logistics point of view, like one of the things they they bring up in the in the article is the rise of the graduate plus loan, right? Which you know we all sort of aware of, and anybody's listening that's going to graduate school, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Some I believe in the early two thousands that the graduate plus loan was created, which is basically a loan that has no limits right? Um, and allows graduate students, because undergraduate federal federally backed loans have limits uh, per year. The graduate plus loan does not. So what it allows universities to do is set the price at whatever they want, because a student can then borrow up to the price of that tuition plus uh, whatever the school sets as the cost of attendance, which includes living expenses, et cetera. 
So it allows students to have to take on debt very, very, very easily. So in the same way that I believe that I don't necessarily blame people who got stuck in the 2008 housing crisis, for example, when they were borrowing, having huge mortgages or balloon mortgages that they really weren't qualified for, but they that they really couldn't afford, but it was easy to get a house because we were throwing out mortgages like hotcakes. Anybody could get it. Just sign this paper and you could get it. Yeah. Well, people lost their houses, you know, um, when, when, when that balloon payment came or when shit hit the fan. So I don't blame them. I don't say, well, you knew, you knew what you were getting into. Not like the system was fucked up that it, it shouldn't have allowed that to occur. Do you know? So there's some right. blame to go around. So I think the same way, I feel the same way about, universities like yes you could say well here's the price you know what you're getting into yeah but the system is a little fucked up that you can just set the price at whatever you want and the government will say we're going to give you a loan to that also because we're working together and you at the university on the front end get paid because you get that tuition those tuition dollars and you send the student out the door and then they have the debt there's there's even when you know and i i agree with you i knew I made a concerted decision when yeah. I went to school that I was old enough. I knew this. I knew the odds. I knew what I was getting into. I don't think I really knew the sort of like, I don't think anybody knows the feeling of having, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt until you're in it and have to pay it. I right. think that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing you can only imagine until mm-hmm. you're actually feeling it. So you can know what it looks like on paper, but you don't know the reality of it. But I knew, at least on paper, what that what I was getting into. And I'm very blessed because it has worked out largely for me. So I'm okay. But I do have empathy for the people making thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year and carrying three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. I don't think it's all their fault. That's my point. Yeah, I mean, I I can't argue with that, you know? I mean, I think, look, we have an education system that is deeply entrenched in capitalism, right? And capitalism is about consumers uh, accruing debt. That's part of the way capitalism works and continues to generate money for those in power. So, you know, you look at other countries, they don't have nearly these bad of issues because some of them are, you know, mixes of capitalist ideology and socialist ideology. Some of them are straight up socialists when it comes to education and they provide free education for their citizens. But other countries don't have this problem because they're not looking to the capitalist model to solve Correct. education. Correct. And so when you look at this problem, whether you're talking about individual responsibility or the university's responsibility or really the government's responsibility, where I tend to think the biggest problem is, Really what you're talking about is that we're all getting eaten up and chewed by a capitalist system that's working in a for-profit type of way. Even with these nonprofit institutions, somebody is making money off this interest and somebody is making money off this debt. And that's a big, big problem. I don't think education and capitalism go together so well. So I do have empathy for in in the same sense that you do. Like, yo, people are getting spit, you know, chewed up and spit out by this predatory capitalist system. And there might be so it might be a whole systemic thing. It might not blame you might not be able to blame Columbia individually or 
the government individually or even the students individually. It might just be a system that is so messed up that none of us can really escape it, which is why I'm advocating for a huge overhaul. I, I think yeah, that's such a smart point because the capitalist side, because what's really happening is that if you're a university, yo, free money is on the table. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if you're operating as like a business, essentially, there's free money here. Like, I don't have to give these students anything, and they're still coming. Well, it's they're a, still gonna yeah. they're still gonna pay me. They still I'm gonna set this shit at sixty five thousand dollars a year. These motherfuckers are still coming, and the government is writing that check to me every semester. Yeah, of course. What is my incentive to do anything different? None. I'm going to keep raking it in. I mean, maybe backlash from an article like this, maybe. But the but you're right. It's like a it's a capitalist mindset as a, as opposed to a mind an edu- a better educational mindset, which says, listen, we need to support the arts and art students and high quality arts right. education. So we could charge them sixty five thousand dollars a year, and they're going to give it to. But we're not going to do that because that's just not the right thing to do. So we're going to make sure. Because we know what their prospects are in terms of what they might make. So we just have a different philo- philosophical way of looking at it. And we're not going to, you know, try to rake them over the coals. We'll rake the business school, you know, <laughs> we'll, right. we'll bring, well, but, you know, they don't do that. Okay. So a couple things. Where does a rubber meet the road, Shu? If I'm listening to this and I'm 22 years old and I have a passion for film, right? But I know that I need some more instruction. And I'm sort of considering whether I should go to grad school. Like, talk facts, bro. Is it worth it? Is that debt worth it? What do you can you expect to get? What what shouldn't you expect? Like, talk real practical shit to people who might be listening. Here's what I always say to people, and I'm pretty sure I've said this on on this podcast in some form. Yeah. Going to graduate school and going to Columbia specifically was the best decision I ever made for my career. There is almost, not even almost, there is a direct line between not only my education and training, but literally a script that I wrote while in school and the help of a professor that ended up in a roundabout way, but ended up uh, getting me my first opportunity my first representative, and then ultimately my first job. It it was a direct line from Columbia. So I would have paid a million dollars for that. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. So um, because that set me up to be able to make money for the in this business for the rest of my life, or hopefully, you know, I got to bring the goods with the talent, et cetera. Yeah. But, but it set me up to do that. So for me... Again, it's like you said, it was it's kind of priceless. Yeah. At the same time, if you ask me, if you were that person, that 22, 26, 28 year old, 40 or whatever, should I go to graduate school? You know, I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to say, yeah, you should take on that debt and do it. It's really a personal decision may not work out for you. The biggest piece of advice I can get give. In fact, for most people, I'd probably say no. I think it's probably not a good idea. Yeah. You would have to be okay with the idea that you may come out with this incredible amount of debt and never really be able to pay it. And it may hamper you for a long time. 
100%, man. And I agree with everything you said, and I'll put it a couple different ways, but basically saying the same thing you said. I said this when I posted the article on Facebook the other day. If your interest in being financially stable, having a stable job, or being largely debt-free is greater than your passion for film, entertainment, and art, man, you're, you're in the wrong field. You should not go in, you not, let alone should you go to film school, but you should probably not go into the arts because you're not going to get any of those things within the arts. You should sort of get yourself a stable job and maybe do it as a side hustle, maybe do it sort of on the side, but you're, you're going to be sorely disappointed with what you get out of chasing a creative field in a country that doesn't really value that with, with money, especially early on, right? So like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you're going to be really mm-hmm. disappointed. You know, if you don't want to have debt, if you don't, if you want a high paying regular job, you're going to be very disappointed, especially when you're starting out. So I would say like, way, what's more important to you? If being financially stable and debt free and having a job that pays you a good amount of money week to week to week as essentially a guarantee, there are so many other jobs and vocations Mm -hmm. you could pursue that will give you all those things. But if you're crazy, if you're crazy like I am. If you wake up and you can't think about anything else except art and storytelling and filmmaking, if you're nuts, man, if you don't, if finances are not the biggest concern for you and what's really a concern for you is being dope in this field and being dope in art and being dope in filmmaking, then maybe you have sort of the first step to going to pursue an expensive education in film. That's the first question that people have to ask themselves, man, because I think what happens is a lot of people trick themselves into thinking that a degree is a degree and that a degree in education in film is going to get you the same return that a degree in education in IT is going to get you or a degree in education in nursing is going to get you or a degree in education in education is going to get you. It's not the same. Not because the educations aren't both valuable, not because the school is slacking or not doing its job. It's because the fields you're entering have extremely different barriers to entry and a level of subjectivity that doesn't really exist outside of the arts where people can just say, I don't like it. And then you're out and then you're excluded. That doesn't really happen in a lot of other fields. So that's the first thing I'll say. You know, the second thing I'll say, Shu, is... You're going to have to sacrifice something to chase Mm. film and art. We're not built, again, this is not a society that's built for people to be comfortable as they're chasing art. And now, is that messed up? Yeah, sure. I would love to be in one of these Western European countries where they really support young artists with talent and they identify them and they prop them up with government funds and grants and all that. We're not in that society here in the United States of America. So... The way it is, you're going to have to sacrifice something. Is that time? Maybe. Is that a stable job starting out? Probably. Is that maybe some debt for grad school? Yeah, maybe that too. Like, what are you going to sacrifice? Pick your poison. It's not going to be as easy as some other fields. So Mm -hmm. I agree with everything you said, but I just wanted to add that a little bit. And you know what part of that I find really interesting? (laughs) And we talked about this a little bit offline, but... A lot of it, and, and I just want to be clear, you don't have to have a, you know, elite, quote, elite 
uh, institution, education in film and television to be able to write a screenplay. You, you don't. Um, so I just want to make that clear, period, stop. You don't have to have that. We're just talking about this area because of the article and because this is where we both graduated from. But it's not a necessary thing, although it is clearly, as we both talked about, very valuable. The, the thing I want to say to that, though, is like I think a lot of it, when considering something like going to Columbia or somewhere else like it, a lot of it comes down to like one's personal, emotional relationship with money. And for a lot of people, that differs mm -hmm. wherever you are on the financial spectrum. For me, and I don't want to speak for you too, uh, Sherm, but I imagine it's similar. Like, I mean, I was broke before I got there. Right. So, I mean... <laughs> So I'm going to be $300,000 more broke? Who gives a fuck? Like that, that's, you know what I mean? Like they ain't going to get their check if I don't, you know what I mean? Like right. what are they going to do to me? Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So like part of it was like, I don't mind. I mean, you know, I, I routinely miss paying bills and rent and stuff when I was, you know, before I went to graduate school. So I, I did not fear brokenness. I mean, I feared it in the sense that I never want, you know, I've been broke most of my life. I did not want to be, but I didn't fear it in the sense that like, oh my God, the, the walls are crumbling down. I was like, well, who gives a shot? I'm, it's not, there's not a different scenario. I'll just be broke again. All right, whatever. I'll make it work. Well, sure. This is, I mean, you're saying exactly what I was saying earlier, which is you valued the pursuit of art, the pursuit of education and art the pursuit of getting to where you wanted to be as an artist more than you valued financial stability. I'm not advocating for anybody to make the choice one way or the other, but I'm just also saying beware of people who tell you as a, as a young artist that what you should really be concerned about is only financial stability. Yeah. That, right. There's a, there's a reason why those people work at banks. You know, there's a reason why yes. those people work at cubicles in uh you know in corporate environments i'm not knocking that but they have a different mentality that's a yeah. totally different mentality than when you're a young person and you can't think of anything else because you have true passion and you have something to say and you have a creative urge that needs to be expressed in the best possible way and if that's the case then a, then refining that talent and that passion at a place like columbia is again priceless if you are concerned with your debt to income ratio, if you are concerned with stability and paying all your bills on time, like Shakri said, and not having to work, you know, shitty part-time jobs so that you have time to write and so on and so forth and all the other dozens of sacrifices you have to make in pursuit of your dream and your passion, if you're more concerned with the, the other stuff, it's just not for you. It, it, it has nothing to do with school. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it has nothing to do with whether you should go to an elite graduate program or not. You don't have the fire. It's just not right. for you, man. It's just not for you. And that's okay. Not everybody has to not everybody has to chase this as crazily as, you know, our peers did and Shu did and, and people we look up to did and all the all the film greats did. Not everybody has to chase it like that. That's not everybody's path. But it's gonna be very, very hard for you if you're not willing to sacrifice some of that stuff. Yeah, agreed, man. Agreed. Should we move on? We should move on. We we just gave you horrible financial advice, so you know yeah, don't I mean, don't listen to us. Yeah. Don't listen. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like I have a house. I bought my first house. It was just in the form of an eight by eleven 
um, degree that says Master of Fine Arts. See, you know, you know but, I, but I see even, let me just back up. I think even that, even that, I know you're joking, but even that is sort of the mentality that I think starts to get people like really upset about their education. Mm-hmm. Because I, the degree, who cares? The name of the institution, who cares? This is just my perspective. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is I went into that school not knowing how to write a feature film. And I came yes. out of that school writing a feature film that was professional quality. Preach. And I know Preach. that because yes. that some of those scripts have sold. You know what I'm saying? So like I went in not knowing what I, having an urge and a passion and a creative you know voice that I thought needed to be expressed, but really not having the skill set yet to express it the way I wanted. And then I came out a lot closer to being able to do exactly what I wanted to do. Yep. And degree, yep. name of institution, whatever, that's not as Who important cares? as yeah. what I learned and how I got, you know, where I got. Totally agree. All right, Shu. So thank you for that riveting talk about our old stomping grounds, Columbia, and how much they're charging and how disappointed some people are. But, like, let's move on. We talked yeah. enough about that. Yeah, we, uh, we got some great questions in from some of our listeners over the break, and I thought we would just do like a lightning round answering of these questions real quick. Sure. sure. Okay. So first question, how do you balance research and writing for a project? How do you balance researching? I guess the question is sort of like, how do you balance researching for a project in general? And how do you balance writing and researching simultaneously? Do you think that person means writing and researching the same project or writing something and researching something else? I don't know. Hmm. Well, this has come up for me. I'll just answer briefly on a project that I'm working on that I hope to be able to announce that is hugely research dependent. And I think um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, I tend to like to get a lot of research done before getting into the writing process mm-hmm. such that, cause I really think the research informs what the stories are. If it's a, if it's that kind of project, like I'm talking about a historical project in particular, if it's that kind of project, then I think the research really has to inform what's happening with the story. And then you can take liberties uh, because right. uh, you you have the research kind of intact. And um, and actually, I'm writing something now that is based on a true story, in which we're we're taking certainly some artistic liberties, but same process where we researched a lot with the the principles who actually exist and wrote uh, wrote the draft or writing uh, as we speak and then plan to go back because mm-hmm. we know we've taken some artistic liberty then plan to go back and sort of tighten up our draft or tighten up our script with some more sort of like true life nuggets if that makes sense so right. sort of uh, doing a little bit where we do the research we write the draft and then as we're kind of tightening up the draft, we go back to some of the research to uh, kind of solidify some things. Um, hope that makes sense. Yeah, for me, you know, I've never written a, I've pitched a couple of historical things, but I've never actually written a historical thing. And so mostly what I'm doing when I'm researching is I'm looking for specifics that make the script or the characters within the script or the situations within the script seem authentic. But mm-hmm. the drama is already in place. 
right? The drama, the story, what the characters are going through, the plot points already exist. The research is just enhancing sort of the realism or the accuracy of the script. It's not really dictating the story for me. Now, again, this is not a historical thing, but like, you know, I might be looking for, if I'm writing something that's sci-fi and I want it to feel grounded in reality, I might research real quick, like, okay, what kind of equipment does a lab like this use? Mm-hmm. Or what mm-hmm. kind of projects are astrophysicists actually working on in the year 2021 that might be interesting and groundbreaking? Okay, let's have these characters work on something similar. That's the mm-hmm. kind of thing I'm looking for. And in that respect, it usually comes up as I go, right? Like it usually comes up as I'm writing and then I say, oh, I need something specific. I try not to get bogged down into uh, sort of all of the details. I just want to give the hint that I'm doing something that's accurate and the hint that I'm doing something that's pulled from real life. But I'm not actually trying to base story on that or get bogged down in the details. I know a lot of people like to research with, you know, encyclopedic precision. But I actually Mm -hmm. think that because the story is what matters and the story is what's going to keep people watching and not historical accuracy, that you really need to make sure that your story's straight and those little specific points that you get through research are way, way less important than the drama of your story working. And I'll give you an example, right? I rather enjoyed that movie uh, about Queen, Freddie, you know, Freddie Mercury. Am I saying that right? Oh, uh, what the hell was The Rock about? Man? Yeah, yeah. No, what was the title of the movie, though? I don't remember. Anyway, <laughs> I watched it and I enjoyed it. And I don't know anything about Queen except a couple songs, right? And I watched it and I enjoyed it. And I remember talking to some people who were like, well, that wasn't actually how it happened. That album didn't come out in that order. And I'm thinking like, okay, is that why you watch movies? You know, is that why, is that what interests you about the movie? Is that exactly historically accurate? Or do you want to be moved by the story emotionally? And those, those, those facts and, and those exact dates aren't quite as important as telling a great story. For me, I'm the latter, but you know, maybe my scripts will fall short for the people who are the former. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, next question. Next question. Yeah. How do you conduct yourself when you meet an industry person who can help you? How do you deal with the plug, mm. man? You've met an industry mm. plug, somebody who you think can really mm. help you out in some way, help you advance your career, introduce you to the next person. How do you conduct yourself? I actually think I know who wrote this question. Yeah. He's, this person is a big fan. And the reason I'm not going to say his name because he may not want it out there, but the reason I think I'm mentioning him is because I think this is a person that I've met and uh, met in a curious way. And he actually handled himself and has handled himself like uh, I think very well and mm-hmm. like what the example should be for this question. So, I think the best way is to just be, I mean, it's so easy to say, but everybody has different personalities, but just be yourself and don't be pushy, be, have boundaries, you know, but at the same time, ask for what you need, want and need, you know? Yeah. So I'll use him as an example. If it's, if it's not this person, I'm sorry, but this, um, this person I met, on an uber ride he was my driver and we went to uh my job and because he was driving me to my job he talked about uh i i ended up talking about where i was working i was working at at this is us and he said i'm a writer you know etc and i hear this like 
a hundred million times. Everywhere in LA. Everybody's a writer. <laughs> everybody, everybody. But he seemed like a really, he was not pushing his script. He didn't say like, hey, could you read this for me or whatever? You know, nothing like that. He was just being a very cool, like, oh, okay, you know, hey, I write too. You know, I'm trying to trying to do this, trying to do this where I'm from. Oh, okay, all right, nice. We got into the situation where I forgot something at home. Have I told this story before, Sharon? You've told it to me, but I don't know if the listeners okay. have heard it. I, I forgot something at home. So we got all the way to the studio and I had to turn around and go back. So I ended up spending even more time with this person. And over the course of the ride, you know, it was just like a normal guy. So I can't remember whether I, I think I gave my email address. So I'm at the end. I said, listen, man, if you ever, you know, need some advice or whatever, you know, just hit me up. And I, I, he waited for me to um, make that move. He did not ask me for Mm -hmm. my contact info, anything like that. He might've asked me if I was on social media or something. I can't remember, but that's, I think within bounds also, you know, if you, if you have to make a move and you want to ask somebody like, something social like are you on linkedin or something i think that's fine but i wouldn't ask for somebody's email address or something like that i'm pretty sure i offered it he did he hit me up and um eventually and i've done this with a few people he just asked hey man you mind if we grab a cup of coffee and like could i just ask you some questions no problem it took me like months to make this you know arrangement and but we did and he was very nice, very cordial, didn't ask me to read anything, nothing, just asked some nice questions about whatever. And he was and I had to suss him out that he was a normal dude. And um he did whatever. And eventually, I'm getting to my point here, eventually I asked to read something. And he sent it to me, and it's very good. And uh I've been trying to help this person out little by little. Yeah. And he's been very respectful. You know, hits me up every once in a while. Hey, you know, and, you know, anything going on, whatever. Right. And I try to do the same for him. So I think the point is like normal boundaries, not hounding the person. Yes. And waiting. I think this is the real key, like waiting for them, the plug, to make the initial sort of like um, offer of reading or here's my contact info or whatever. Yes. Let them lead the way, you know, just be cool, be professional, be personable and let the person that you're hoping will help you out lead the way. And chances are they'll get the hint. And if they want to help you out, they'll offer to help you out in some way. Uh, Let me add a couple things to that shoe because I think you summed it up nicely. The first thing is when you're approaching an industry person who might be able to help you. And by the way, Shu and I are in the middle. You know what I mean? So like we are sometimes helping people and we are sometimes looking for people to help us. Like I think we (laughs) can speak to both of those. Just be aware that if you're asking somebody to help you or you're hoping that somebody can help you, I guarantee there are 10 other people just like you asking that same exact person, that same exact question. That's a reality is that for every question you ask them, just keep in mind that they also have other people who are asking for their help too. Mm-hmm. And so you be very patient and delicate with them because they might want to read your script. It just might be on the bottom of a pile of 10 scripts that they got before you that they've also offered to read. They might want to introduce you to somebody, but they might have just introduced somebody else to that same person. So they don't right. want to like mess up the connection by flooding them with multiple people over and over again. You have to, you know, it's just like, 
there's a you know there's that meme of like the tip of the iceberg and then the fact that most of the iceberg is underwater understand that like there's other stuff going on under the water there are other people that you are not aware of who are asking the same exact questions and who are asking for this person's time and asking for their help the second thing is be aware of whose job it is to read scripts okay because managers read scripts. If you meet a manager and you strike it off with them, I think it's perfectly appropriate to ask them then and there to read something of yours. That's their job. Mm -hmm, They do mm -hmm, that a lot. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Creative executives uh, at certain companies. Also, sometimes assistants act as creative executives at at some smaller companies. Creative execs, their job is to read, 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 read. Perfectly acceptable to ask them to read something and just put it out there. But for other people in the industry whose job it isn't to read, read, read other people's stuff, let them come to you and ask to read something. Don't just sort of foist yes. it on them because, shoot, I have an inbox full of scripts that people have asked me to read. And I'm sure you do, too. And it takes, I do it. I, I've it had takes like, hours. Yeah, and I, I've I've actually been really poor sometimes about... There are people whose stuff I haven't read that I feel bad about. Like, I'm like, oh, shit, I forgot to... Actually, which leads to another point. Like, there is probably a dozen scripts that people have given me over the years that I have every intention of reading that I just never got to. And I never heard from that person again. Yeah. So I I do think there is, while you don't want to be pushy, like, if someone has agreed to read your stuff, and you got to know that, like, there's... They get that all the time. There's nothing wrong with like, yo, the I love the nudge. Like yeah. hit me with hit me with the email, like, hey, uh, just checking in. You know what I mean? Like, have you read or, like I'm not annoyed by that. I'm actually like, oh shit. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let me uh let me make a date so I can actually read it. I think within reason, but you know, you don't want to be doing that every week. But I think like there's nothing wrong with Sarasa every few weeks checking in. Hey, just, you know, being nice. Hey, just seeing if you got a chance to read the thing or whatever. You know, I think that's fine. Word. Uh, Sure, I think we should move on. I think we should uh, wrap up, man. All right, let's do it. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, what you've been waiting several months for, you knew it was coming back. Here we are again at the end of an episode where we like to do a little segment called Don't Do That Shit where we give you a bite-sized little piece of advice, how you can improve your life, how you can improve your writing, how you can improve your career by telling you what not to do. So here we are. You guys know it. You love it. You fast-forwarded through the rest of the episode to get here. Don't do that shit. Shu, is it cool if I start off today? Of course. I have a don't do that shit. It's actually a don't do that shit that Shu dared me to do. (laughs) He dared me to do. Because I was roasting somebody in our private text chain. I was roasting somebody for like celebrating that they got this job. I was roasting them. And so the don't do that shit is, man, limit your amount of public celebrations. Don't celebrate too much in public. Now, in this particular case, somebody had gotten a job in the film industry, which is hard to do. And they were like throwing themselves like a congratulatory party on their social media that they got this job. I want to tell, I want to say a few things about this. <laughs> NFL teams and NBA teams only pop champagne when they win the championship. Sure, let me say that again. <laughs> Professional sports teams 
only pop champagne when they win the championship. You don't pop champagne on a regular Sunday night game in the middle of the season. Why is that? Because we've decided that there are some things that are worth celebrating big and other things are just worth celebrating in a very muted way. Second thing I'll say is when I was in eighth grade, I was on a horrible basketball team in my middle school. I was the star player, which tells you how bad it was. And we were playing a game and I hit a three pointer to send us into overtime. Sure. Let me tell you, I started dancing. I started doing victory laps around the gym, (laughs) giving people high fives on the sideline. I was celebrating. I was pointing at the other team. And you know what my coach said? What are you doing? We haven't won the game. He said, what is wrong with you? We haven't won the game. I think we lost in overtime, actually. We haven't won the game. You just got us to overtime. We have not won the game. And I would like to say that to writers, too. You haven't won the game, man. Keep it muted. Act like you've been there before. You get a job, that's great, man. Maybe just a simple post. Better yet, celebrate with the people who you know and you love offline, the people who can really appreciate it. Call your parents up. Solicit compliments from your parents. Talk to your significant other. They're going to be really happy for you. Talk to your peers and your ex-classmates and your alumni. They're going to be happy for you too. Do you need to throw yourself a big public celebration because you got a low-level job? In a writer's room? I don't think so. So don't do that shit. Act like you've been there before. And also, don't let people see you as the person who is satisfied with the low-level job. I don't want anybody to think that, like, oh, there's Sherman Ceiling. Look how happy he is. That's it for him. He got that job. No, man. I want people, I wanna, I want people to see me celebrate when I win the championship because I want them to think of me as a champion. Don't do that shit. Okay. Sure. <laughs> okay. You can you can you can probably hear my son in the background, which is a great segue to my don't do that shit. My son is two years old. And when he feels good about something, he expresses his joy. Because he's a kid, the world is bright, he hasn't been jaded by life or shut down by anything. And although we're not kids, sometimes it is good to maintain that kid-like, child-like view of the world. So my don't do that shit is don't let people steal your joy. And so, Sherman Payne, if you want to get on social media and celebrate the smallest of victories. Come on, man. You got somebody to read your script, and they liked it. Pop the champagne? Wanna, is that what you're saying? And you want to put that on? Man, go ahead. Go ahead. Nobody has to pay attention. You're not forcing people to pay attention. You're not. Celebrate your victories. Celebrate your victories along the way. If people want to look, look the other way, they can look the other way. But you can celebrate your victories along the way, and don't let anybody steal your joy. But look, you brought up basketball. It's a great example. I believe, if I don't have this story messed up, that Magic Johnson in his first career NBA game, I believe Kareem hit a buzzer beater. Yes, and Magic Johnson ran up and jumped into his arms. His arms, And what did did Kareem say to him? 
Kareem said something like there's 81 games left. Shoot. <laughs> <Thanks. laughs> sure. right, so you're not really rebuttaling me. You no, understand no. the point. I understand the point. Listen, I understand my, my my high school basketball coach, who I love and adore to this day, used to say the same thing. Used to say, act like you've been there. Yes. You know, don't don't celebrate. You know, we don't celebrate moral victories. Yes. All those things. And I hear that. But, and I don't totally disagree because I, I, I hear that and I feel that. But I think two things can be true in this case. And I don't think there's anything wrong was celebrating the victory, man. Even if it's small, you never know if you're going to... Look, I'll, I'll give an example, which is going to... I hope it doesn't sound like I'm tooting my horn, because I'm not. But I have not framed my Emmy nomination uh, certificate. And I think part of it is because... And it was like three years ago. And part of it is because, like you, I'm like, eh, it's an Emmy nomination. It's not... I didn't win. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't, but, but, I, it's, but, it's not the trophy. But the Emmys it's, are but, the championship, bro. That's the thing. You no, made it's it, not. Not a nomination. You made it's it to the championship. Nomination. You made it's it to the nomination. But you made it to the championship no, game. No, it's not. It's the cha- different. It's different. Okay, so you made it to the championship game. Fine. Yes. Nobody, when you lose game six, the losing team doesn't go celebrate. They don't, right? I'm just drawing a distinction. So, so what you have to, but I don't think that's right. That's what I'm saying. So I, I think it is right to, you know what? Frame that thing. Put it up on the wall. My wife tells me all the time, why don't you frame that? You need to celebrate that thing. And I think that's right. You got to celebrate small victories, even if they don't seem like the ultimate victory in your mind. You have to celebrate those things because you don't know when they're going to come back. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating your little job that you got as a writer's assistant or whatever who cares that, right. that's a good thing to celebrate whatever, man. i'm i'm kobe i'm kobe after the game remember they asked kobe yeah they said kobe you weren't you aren't smiling much you aren't smiling much what gives and you know what kobe said job's not done hey job's I, not done guess what i don't dis- i don't job's disagree with not that not done pop the champagne when you win the championship that's what i'm playing for bro sure we gotta we gotta wrap yeah, we got it right. Uh, you make me wish that I would have gone last on that. Don't do that shit. You used your time to rebuttal me effectively. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> You have been listening to the Diversity Hires. We are Div Hires Pod across all social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You won't find Shakri there, but you can find us. You can also find us at patreon.com slash divhirespod, where you can become a patron and give us a little bit of money to keep this thing afloat. I'm your host, Sherman Payne, co-host, you know, one half co-host Sherman Payne. And I am Shukri Hassan Tillman. This show is produced by the wonderful August K. Burton, recent graduate of the University of Southern California graduate film program. Congratulations, AKB. And our social media director, shout out Tia Ren, doing all the great stuff on social media. Feel free to reach out to us at the diversityhires.com write questions write some feedback and also we want to up our numbers on our ratings uh online so review us go to apple Podcasts or anywhere you find this podcast give us a five-star review we got a great season coming up lots of guests coming exciting discussion next week one the week after that we got a lot of stuff coming we can't wait for you 
to listen this season and share, share, share the podcast with everybody you know. We will see you next time on the Diversity Hives. Peace.